hope you're listening to our tunes. Music appreciation and digital media discourse via the contents of two iTunes libraries. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Our Tunes. My name is Brad. I'm here with... I'm Lewis. I have an iTunes library, which is the only criteria for being on the show. Right, and I'm Lewis's friend, which is my criteria as well, in addition to my iTunes library. Lewis and I have uh, engaged in many conversations over the years about our love for music, and we decided that... Maybe it would be interesting fodder to talk about the music of yore from our childhood through college, all found on our respective iTunes libraries that we've collected over the years. So really, it's just an opportunity to dig deep into the art archives, share music with each other that we may not have you know, known and uh, sort of learn about each other's tastes and just generally... Uh, Enjoy some good conversation over some good tunes. Hear, hear. So with that, I think one of the first things we wanted to sort of talk about on this uh, first episode is just generally earliest memories about collecting music, getting into iTunes, and so I think Lewis is going to start it off. Thanks, Brad. I'm going to bring it all the way back to the first debut date of the program iTunes, which was actually 21 years ago last week. So January 9th of 2001, iTunes debuted on Mac OS products. The iPod came out a couple years after that, but any computer at that time came standard with iTunes. Uh, it was originally an idea by Steve Jobs for a way of organizing and collecting digital audio. So it's gone through many iterations, countless annoying updates. And actually in 2019 is when iTunes was pretty much abandoned in favor of separate programs for music, TV, and podcasts. So if you buy an Apple product today, you're not going to get iTunes. I did not know that. (laughs) Uh, The more you know. Uh, Thanks, Wikipedia. iTunes, I think my first encounters with it were as a program that you could use to load up an iPod, which was a shiny little deity you could hold in your pocket. And I first installed the program on my home, parents' home PC uh, in 2005. At that time, I think I also got my first iPod. It was a used one. But 2005 is pretty much when that collection started mounting. Prior to that, I think under the influence of my brother, I was using Winamp and I was like not super keen on it. And I really just liked the layout of iTunes. It was really appealing, kind of getting to just like to peruse my whole library in one one setting in a very clean format was uh, was kind of revolutionary. Music collecting started 2005 and pretty much never stopped. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so for me, I'd have to say that my first recollection of iTunes was when I got for Christmas one year, an iPod. It was a fifth generation. I was just trying to think what year that came out. I'm guessing 
probably sometime around 2005 or six. I just remember it being like super sleek design. I think it was a black one. You know, this was before smartphones. So like this was like the most advanced tech thing I had ever owned. Like I was growing up as like a Windows kid. And so like Apple products just seemed like cool and fancy and eccentric compared to like the frumpy Microsoft uh, Windows type Thing, like Winamp and no offense to Winamp, great organizing skills, but like, you know, lots of uh, cool ways of, you know, slicing and dicing and tagging things, but like iTunes looked cool. You know, it had the little visualizer. I remember even going back further, I had friends who had like the old iMacs. We would like, you know, just watch the visualizers. And this was before I had even discovered certain recreational drugs that could enhance music in different ways. Prior to that, you know, collected most things on CDs, lots of burning of those CDs, music libraries started to grow. I, so going back to like the initial genesis of like this whole little project, I had not been using iTunes for a good five, six, uh, say, years, especially since I've started using Spotify in recent years, I haven't really looked at my library of mp3s in a long time. So I've been digging back in, recognizing that I had spent countless hours doing my tags and sorting things into genres. And so it's like stepping back into this like old world of former Brad's like obsessions. So hopefully uh, we can get into it over the next number of episodes. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel exactly the same way about the library existing as this thing that I spent tons of time just, like, keeping tidy, correcting, like, all the little metadata in it, and making sure the genre was right, fixing titles that were off because I may have acquired them uh, from third-party downloading sites, but really just, like, putting so much time and effort into making it a neat thing, and I think that was its own separate extension of my love of music was my love of just organization and, and keeping stuff in neat little neat little rows. It's like a time capsule at this point because besides a few things that I download from like Bandcamp, I wouldn't say I download a lot of music anymore because that's not the way that I consume it. And it's not the way that I really go out of my way to support artists, right? If I'm going to buy something from an artist, buying a digital track doesn't seem as impactful as buying like a record or a shirt or a, a poster or seeing them perform live. I feel like the, the novelty of downloaded music is kind of <laughs> worn out a little bit. Thanks, Bonnie. Bonnie uh, the cat making guest appearance on the pod. So I feel like that that pretty well uh, lays the foundation. Shall we introduce our first segment? Sure. The cat is wreaking havoc. We're gonna pause for this. <laughs> You're listening to our tunes. This is homework. One of our segments that's going to happen in every episode is called homework. So unlike homework that you dread, this is homework that you're not even sure if you dread it yet, because maybe you're listening to something and you've never heard it before. So one person assigns the other an album of specific value to them for thoughtful listening and a brief report, just like you would fulfill an assignment in school. Brad, uh, what, what's my homework today? <laughs> Thank you, Lewis. So I think one of the reasons why Lewis had sort of come up with this idea of homework was that we have a good amount of overlap 
between our musical tastes, but we also like have very, we came from very different sort of backgrounds in music. We're hoping to sort of introduce each other to different things that maybe we've not been, you know, that the other, that we don't think the other person has necessarily been exposed to or at least dove in too deep. When I was looking through my iTunes library, I meticulously sorted things by genre. So the first thing I was looking at, I was like, what kind of genre things do I think that maybe Lewis hasn't looked into? And so the, the one genre that I have is uh, Krautrock. And so I was like, okay, that's going to be one because that was like, that was like one of the first international like musical genres that I really got into that I was like wow there's so much more music outside of like mainstream classic rock American you know jazz I was into jazz and that there's things outside the U.S. borders I'm shocked yeah so the album I picked was an album called Faust 4 by the band Faust kind of my favorite one of the sort of kraut rock albums that I've come across and I'm happy to share why I like it but I think first I'd like to hear what Lewis thought about it. Well, this was a homework assignment that I definitely dove into feet first. I did a little background because I wanted to kind of contextualize this album for myself uh, as I began listening to it. And I listened to it probably like five or six times this week. It was definitely a seminal kraut rock album and actually has a track on it called, you guessed it, Kraut Rock.
this album came out September 21st, 1973, and was released on Virgin Records, which is a major label. So, you know, they're a German band, international, extremely large music corporation, and uh, I found out this was actually kind of their sellout record. So, if you're not familiar with that term, it's when a band that has maybe scrappier roots signs to a major record label to get wider distribution, bigger uh, budget for recording, etc., so like oh, so they were other, selling out the yeah. album didn't sell out no 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 they sold out yeah by signing with Virgin. exactly they yeah. took they took the check and they were like listen we're gonna go to the studio and we're gonna make our weird stuff which when you look when you listen to this record in uh i think in modern modern parlance it doesn't make sense as a sellout record because <laughs> a sellout record means that it makes money for the for the <laughs> uh the, the company right for the label I don't think you could pick a track off of this and go like, yeah, this is a single and we're going to play this on the radio. <laughs> College DJs are going to go ape shit for this track because it just wouldn't happen. Like these songs are really dense. They're really off-putting at times. They're strange. They're beautiful. There's so many things. So that's my little context piece, but I definitely want to get into like the meat of the album. As I was listening to it, right, the first track, Krautrock, is 11 plus minutes long. It drives, it swerves. It creates this like really lush uh, foundation of instrumentation, and this is like correct me if I'm wrong, Brad. Kind of the the fundamental thing about kraut rock, right, is that there's this really steady driving beat behind everything, and over top of that is just a world of noise or just anything chaos going on. You know, my first thought was, wow, this is it's spacious. Like you can hear everything really crisply, and there's lots of space between the music. But it's also like pretty psychedelic, even with the kind of rhythm section holding it down part before you even get to like the bleeps and bloops and the weird samples and the just guitar noise. Yeah, I can't help but say that when I was listening to it recently, I was thinking to myself, this is very psychedelic, but it's like nerd psychedelic, <laughs> you know? Like, I'm sure they were doing whatever fun things to expand their minds, but like, these guys sound like some real music nerds. Yeah, these people are obviously like having fun and like just going nuts on this this record but it's not like right it's not a, a Jimi hendrix psychedelia where it has like kind of more of a blues like root to it that has a lot of straightforwardness this is like anything but straightforward even though it still relies on that backbeat right so my, my initial thought was, God bless this drummer. This drummer like puts in work. I can't imagine how hard he works and he's still he's still doing it, I think. He's still alive. So wherever you are, Werner Diermeyer, <laughs> uh, nice job, man. Really good. <laughs> so yeah, I had a couple uh, thoughts on some select tracks. There's the song uh, Jennifer, which uh, comes in a couple tracks into the album. My thought was that like the clean parts in this, right? Again, the rhythm section, the drums, bass that are very well well matched and pacing each other. It's very clean. It's like, it's so crisp. And that's kind of where the studio budget comes in, I feel like, is, okay, they had a lot of money to make this sound exactly how they wanted it to. And this is the end result. This is what we're listening to. And that clean part is so clean. But when it starts to get noisy, even the noise is clean, right? It's such a separate channel. It doesn't kind of muddy what's going on underneath. And that makes it happen in a really kind of beautiful way as you go through this album, because that stays consistent no matter what the structure of the song, no matter what else is going on. There's like kind of those elements at play no matter what. My uh, favorite track I picked 
Picnic on a Frozen River, which is a great track because it's divided into like two distinct parts that are completely different. They can be completely different songs. However, they were put together with some intention, right? The band was like, okay, we recorded this track. It starts out as kind of like a more like looming, like brooding thing. And then the second half of it is kind of upbeat. There's a sax solo. There's like kind of these dueling guitars that happen. And then at about four minutes through this song, which is like over seven minutes long, it just like breaks out into a completely different feel. ending is completely abrupt like there's no you know there's no winding down there's no like let's go back and repeat a part before we end it's like okay i don't know where it just ends so i would have to say that that is also my favorite song from the album uh who knew yeah i mean i love it totally like after that sax solo when it goes into the section where there's this like unison between it sounds like a guitar and like a synthesizer that play this like melody unison over this like driving drums and bass I always want to get up and like dance and like gyrate. It makes like, a move. I like sometimes frequent the Reddit pages and often find silly things about music where they're like, what's a song that makes you want to dance? And I'm like, Ugh, no, no song makes me want to dance. This is the song. I think it's the only one. You got to post uh, that. Yeah. And, and I'm sure they're just like, what is it? Uh, picnic on a frozen river. Everyone's like, okay, down vote. <laughs> down vote for even suggesting that, buddy. <laughs> 
What is that? Yeah, the, and the name doesn't betray anything about the song. Like, far from it, right? There's, like, there's yeah. nothing about that song that would scream, like, okay, this is a movie body number. So, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm glad that you like that song, too. I think that uh, that's a first look at where our sensibilities overlap, which is an important thing to touch on, because there are plenty of places where they don't, and I think there are plenty of places where they do. So that's really cool. Uh, another song on there that's kind of on the lighter side, almost a little folky, was uh, Giggy Smile. So this is a song that has like much lighter, much more airy guitars. It's less of like a kind of dark progression. And it relies more on kind of repetition and like riffing more than just like kind of spurts of noise. It also features clapping, which is kind of like a, in this format, it's sort of like a little twee like treat. I wouldn't necessarily expect music like this that so heavily relies on electric instruments and like driving beats to also feature clapping out of nowhere. I found that kind of pleasant. This whole album, I think, is really defiant in terms of its structure, its instrumentation, and your expectations, right? If you're listening to this record, number one, in the 70s, you must know who this band is. This is so so pre-internet, right, that you couldn't just find out about this band unless you were trying to find out about it, right? Or if you were interested in more, like, underground experimental music. And that actually brings me to another point, which I think might become a hallmark of this uh, podcast, is that this is a punk band, Brad. <laughs> Because in the context okay. that I was gathering uh, about this music, right, the, the idea of crowd rock music emerged from its own countercultural movement in Germany, where they were like, okay, you know, screw the classical music, screw the folk music. That's all like part of a, a bloody past for Germany at this point. We're going to forge something new and it's going to be weird. And guess what? 
squares aren't going to like it, you know? We're going to make it different. We're going to make it our own. And it's very, it's like art rock, and it's punk, because it literally goes against the grain of society like at that time in Germany. Whatever your association is with the word punk, I really think that this, that's what's at the core of it. An idea of making something different, trying something new, and just like really being unashamed of it. Totally. Well, I look forward to you um, enlightening me on all the various dimensions of punk music that I am not appreciating. <laughs> uh, and I will accept that, you know, I would imagine having not been there uh, when this album was made or came out, it is pretty clear that it's like countercultural, you know, like they definitely have a lot of noise elements, dissonance things that interrupt songs in ways that I think a lot of people with pop sensibilities would sort of like turn their nose up at. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to think. There is this one, um, it's a bit of a pain. I think it's the last song in the album where it kind of sounds like a Kevin Ayers song, but whenever it goes into the chorus, there's just like this really loud, crunchy synth drone yeah. that plays over the entire chorus like almost louder than the vocals it made me look at my headphone jack when it came in (laughs) what the fuck is happening it was clear that they were trying to maybe evoke certain emotions through these like dissonant harsh sounds that a lot of them were coming from synthesizers which at that time you know probably was introducing sounds that most people hadn't really been accustomed to or or at least hadn't heard them in this sort of setting like i just went back while i gave this homework to lewis i thought to myself i better listen to this album i haven't listened to it in a couple of good many months and i was like if i could describe some of the synth sounds on here you know some of the, like the some of the uh, uh adjectives that come to mind were wet electricity you know and and that was one of the reasons you know going back to like what is my fond memories of this album it was that sonic textures right like tones that this band put together you know not only just the synths that were like producing otherworldly sounds that i hadn't heard before but also just like how they all pulled it together with the drums and bass that were like driving throwing down some like droney rhythms that were uh, amazing and then these guitars that were kind of like carrying things through you know in some songs with a very airy arpeggio kind of feeling or like crazy like improvisational thing you know so it was certainly like going back to what i said earlier about this being like nerd psychedelia they were clearly students of music there are definitely some like jazz and improvisational elements to the songs and um, you know coming from my background of music that i was into at the time i was like a total jazz snob and so i feel like this was definitely really great to like bring me into this world of different international music that was being made outside the United States that was like really cool and kind of piggybacking on what you said right if this is a jazz inflected or informed version of rock or psychedelic music this album obviously becomes influential for other bands my first thought is like a band like television that's a band with huge huge guitars huge drums but also like a little bit more of a weird off-kilter feel done in like a pop structure people I'm sure of that era who are coming of age or listening to this album and going like, whoa, this is really out there. And then taking that influence with them onto, onto other things. 
also like yeah in terms of these people being arty or nerdy as hell i definitely agree with that because how do you name your band faust if you're not like a total freaking nerd right so faust is a legendary story of myth where a guy sells his soul to the devil for unlimited knowledge and earthly delights right so that's like yeah you get all the all the cred cred for days uh for naming your band that one gripe I had listening to this album Ooh, gripe. was that I listened to it initially on Spotify. Because guess what? This album isn't in my iTunes library. Mm-hmm. But you've shared it with me. So mm-hmm. now it's one of our tunes. However, Spotify's album post for this has a remastered version and the original version in the same queue. Drove me nuts. Why is that? Why does it drive you nuts? Well, because you click into an album. Uh-huh. If I listen to an album front to back, it ends with the last track. Except in this version, it begins with the first track mm. of a completely different master. That's just some lazy shit, Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> Could I ask? I love music. I would not call myself like an audiophile. Why wouldn't you want to listen to the remastered? Well, no, it's not that I wouldn't want to listen to the remastered, but I would love it to have its own album page. Yeah, I guess I would just ask why if they've gone through the effort to remaster it. Well, so remaster is tricky too, right? Because <laughs> I don't know, Spotify doesn't post its information. Uh-huh. I don't know who remastered it, why they remastered it. If you listen to the original version, which I'm sure is like the diluted MP3s we digest or some version of that 1973 recording, then that's a thing that hits you as it was intended to, as it was artistically rendered, versus, okay, it was remastered, maybe the record label that owns the masters was like, it's time for a cash grab, people are into Krautrock again, we're gonna make a remaster and sell it to people. There's pretty dark motivations in the music industry, and this, like I said, is a major label record. I'm just, I question the motivations sometimes of people who remaster and re-release music. So you would say that you can't cross the board trust every remastering because it may deviate from the original intent? No, 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 that's not what I'm saying at all. Because, like, I think the intent can be preserved. Mm -hmm. But who remastered this? Like, was it the original engineer? Was it someone in the band? I want to know how this fits into the bigger picture of what they made. And I want to see it as something that makes sense with all of that background as opposed to something that is just greedy or money-hungry. And that's not to say it is. That's kind of an assumption that I go into some things with. But more than that, it was just like putting two different albums back to back on the same album listing. Yeah, and also like, I don't know, maybe you'll agree with this. Like, I remember part of iTunes being like, I would turn on the like Explorer bar, which in my, you know, I just downloaded iTunes again. And I was like, where's the Explorer bar? I had to like, yeah, it's like, it's deep in there. It's apparently not everyone uses the Explorer bar, you know, where you get the genre, the artist, and the album. You need to filter that stuff. So what I would love is like, you'd, you'd get on that album and like, there'd be a nice, clean, organized track listing. You're speaking my language, bro. Yeah, I know. So, like, I'm feeling you. I can see why this situation on Spotify would disrupt your zen, you know? It's an exaggeration that I'm even griping about this, right? (laughs) It's just that, okay, you'll take Spotify, which is an enormously valuable company Mm -hmm. that we are almost all consumers of at this point that also pays artists like shit. There's a great evil to Spotify that I think we've all kind of accepted because of our love of convenience. Just like for all the wealth and worth you have, do a better job. Uh, I don't know if it would be up to Spotify though. Don't you think maybe it's like uh, up to the like label putting it on? It's but possible. 
But again, that all filters through a central platform, right? The platform is not in our hands, right? It's not iTunes, which you can control at will. You can change the names of songs yeah. in iTunes if you yeah. want, right? Yeah. Like, you know, it's it's uh, it's impersonal. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lewis. It sounds like you've really did your homework. I will give you a check plus. Love it. That's <laughs> all. Uh, I agree. We haven't we haven't <laughs> negotiated any sort of grading system. I'm not really into grades, so I'll just say uh, I appreciate that you listened to it. I'm glad that you uh, found some good in it. I feel like I got an emotional A plus. Yeah. Thanks, Brad. So I guess the next question is, what will be your first homework assignment for me? Well, Brad, I'd like you to travel back in time to 2006, and I'd like you to visit the album Knives Don't Have Your Back by Emily Haynes and the Soft Skeleton. So this is a solo record that was put out by metric frontwoman Emily Haynes, and that's kind of all I'm going to say about it. I just want you to get in there and soak it up. All right, I look forward to it. Listening to Our Tunes, a bi-monthly music podcast hosted by Brad Lanute and Lewis Weil, produced by Robert Hughes. Like what you heard? Follow us on Twitter at Our Tunes Pod or Instagram at Our Tunes Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Cut the tape. <laughs> <laughs>